Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Pamela Hanlon talks about the United Nations headquarters in Turtle Bay. Hanlon, an independent historian, is the author of A Worldly Affair, New York, the United Nations, and the story behind their unlikely bond. Here you'll get and digest some of that larger narrative. The world may now take it for granted that the international diplomatic body is headquartered in Manhattan. But long after New York's famous mayor, Fiora LaGuardia, declined to compete with other cities for it, the UN's residence in New York City remained uncertain. And while New Yorkers may complain about things like the noisy traffic jams caused by its location, Hanlon reminds us that the city has gotten much benefit in return, economic and otherwise. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. For more than 70 years, New York City and the United Nations have been neighbors. The boundary between them is a mere six-block stretch of First Avenue on one side and the banks of the East River on the other. It's all but taken for granted that they share a postal zip code, they have the same 212 telephone area code, and both are located on the storied 42nd Street, the address of Broadway Theaters, Grand Central Terminal, and the New York Public Library. Yet, in 1946, when the nations of the world made the decision to choose Manhattan as their global meeting place, it was a stunning development. Many wondered how the unlikely pair would ever coexist, a crowded, bustling metropolis and an enclave of diplomats located squarely in its midst. Today, the UN membership has grown from its original 51 nations to some 193. And indeed, over the years, New York City and the world body have had their share of conflicts. Each has suggested more than once, and often not so subtly, that the organization might find another place to set up its headquarters. But their quarrels seem always to have been worked out or forgotten before any foreign envoys have picked up and left New York. And so the two have stuck together, the ever-confident New York City and the United Nations, never intimidated by its cosmopolitan host. New Yorkers often grumble about the UN's presence in the center of their town. The traffic-snarling motorcades, scofflaws hiding behind diplomatic immunity, member nations' objectionable policies, and controversial foreign guests. Yet the benefits to the city can hardly be ignored. Today, more than 16,000 workers are employed by the UN community, and the annual boost to the New York economy is estimated to be almost $4 billion. That's ten times the economic impact of hosting a major party's political convention, a one-time event for which U.S. cities compete vigorously. And the U.N.'s General Assembly session, held annually each fall, is a kind of diplomatic Olympics that most cities would be pleased to host just once, let alone year after year after year. But perhaps more significant, if less tangible, is the prestige of being the capital of the world. Regularly, the U.N. attracts kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers, And their presence in the city adds to the grandeur and the excitement that has become the trademark of New York. And consider this. There are some 200 foreign news correspondents assigned to the UN, and their news reports reach every corner of the world, often with New York's iconic skyline prominently as a backdrop. That clearly adds to the reputation of the city as the center of the globe. My book, A Worldly Affair, chronicles the history of the relationship between the UN and the city, the ups and downs of their nearly 75 years together. 
So let's look back at history and how it is that New York came to be the host to the UN in the first place. Such a small enclave, only 18 acres in the middle of a large city of more than 200,000 acres, was not the original intention of the United Nations. In fact, in 1945, when the organization's charter was signed and the UN first started to look for a headquarters location, it had its sights set on a vast parcel of land in the countryside. What the UN planners had in mind was some 42 square miles, and engineers were working with the UN to formulate plans that would have expanded the site to some 172 square miles. It was to be a self-contained community, with not only offices and meeting halls, but with homes and schools, libraries, theaters, and shopping venues. What were they thinking, you might ask? Well, it seems clear that back then, just as World War II was ending and leaving such devastation in so many parts of the world, representatives of the new United Nations realized that in the United States there was plenty of spacious, unspoiled land. They assumed there was vast potential acreage on which a large world community could be built. And much of America welcomed the idea. More than 150 localities around the country expressed an interest in hosting the UN. Many of them lobbied hard to attract the organization. They mounted extensive promotional campaigns, from big cities like Chicago and San Francisco to rural areas like the Black Hills region of South Dakota and the Smoky Mountain Range in the Appalachians. New York City, then led by the popular Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, didn't campaign for the site. Not because the mayor didn't want the UN to come to New York. He did. But LaGuardia, ever proud of his city, said at the time, quote, I think it is unbecoming for a city to peddle itself. And he went on, and this is from one of his weekly radio broadcasts in mid-1945, quote, I am not going to put my city in the position of bidding for the UN the same as a small-sized city would bid for a national political convention or for the Elks Convention or something like that. I think that when everything is considered, the United Nations will indeed come to New York City. Well, today we all know he was right, but it didn't happen without considerable consternation on the part of the UN, New York officials, and various parts of the country that the UN initially selected, but that were not receptive to having the UN in their midst. In retrospect, it seems the UN didn't warm to any of the locations that were seriously seeking to house its headquarters, while it aspired to settle in the very areas that didn't want it. For months, the world body had its sights set on building its huge international community in the wealthy suburbs north of New York, in the Greenwich, Connecticut area, until it finally realized, in the face of open hostility on the part of residents, literally being shouted down at meetings with local leaders, that it wasn't wanted there. New York City planners proposed that the UN settle in the borough of Queens, in Flushing Meadow Park, on the site of the 1939 World's Fair. It was the spot that the UN was using temporarily as its headquarters while it worked to resolve its permanent facilities. But the UN site planners didn't think the borough of Queens was quite adequate for the permanent quarters. And besides, it still clung to the idea of a large countryside location. New York City officials were mystified. Robert Moses, for one, was incredulous. Moses was the powerful mid-century New York figure who oversaw planning in the city for decades, and he was working with the mayor to bring the UN to the city. This is a quote from Moses. I see no earthly excuse for a huge compound where people of all nationalities will get into each other's hair, 
will never get away from each other, will create neighborhood dissension, and will cut themselves off from life all around them. Still, by year-end 1946, it appeared that no location in New York City was going to be the UN's chosen spot. The choice had come down to areas near San Francisco or Philadelphia, and a final vote was set to be taken in mid-December. But behind the scenes, a young, energetic member of the wealthy Rockefeller family, Nelson, was working on other ideas to keep the UN in New York. Then, just 37 years old, Nelson Rockefeller would, of course, go on to be New York governor and vice president of the United States. But in the mid-1940s, he was focused on New York City affairs and was keenly interested in seeing the UN come to the city. He had connections within the World Organization from the time he had spent working in the U.S. State Department. And, of course, he had a wealthy father, John D. Rockefeller, Jr., who himself was a big supporter of the new United Nations. So Nelson persuaded his father to donate money to the U.N. so that it might buy a group of lots on the East River between 42nd and 48th Streets. They were then the site of stockyards and slaughterhouses. An offer of $8.5 million was made on December 11th, and literally within just hours, the U.N. accepted the Rockefeller gift, which today would equal some $106 million. By year-end 1946, New York City had become home to the U.N. Why did the U.N. do such an about-face, originally wanting a multi-mile site and then settling on 18 acres? First, of course, they were having trouble finding the big acreage they originally yearned for. But second, as delegates and employees of the UN worked from their temporary headquarters in Queens, they were learning about the mystique that is Manhattan. The city was very generous in offering the delegates complimentary tickets to Broadway shows and Carnegie Hall performances. City fathers hosted the delegates at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and private art galleries and took their families on picnics in Central Park. It seems clear, in retrospect, that the delegates gradually grew to like Manhattan, its energy and excitement, its diversity. A few months later, now this would be mid-1947, the UN and the United States signed an agreement that outlined the legal issues surrounding the presence of the international organization within the boundaries of New York City. It's an arrangement that has, over the years, been tested at times, but has worked well for both parties. The basic concept is simple. The six-block track of land is owned by the United Nations, but it remains part of the United States. The laws of the city, New York State, and the U.S. federal government generally apply within the headquarters district. But to protect the independence of the organization, no authority of the city, the state, or the federal government may enter the U.N. headquarters territory without the U.N.'s permission and the land can't be used as a refuge for anyone attempting to avoid arrest or for anyone trying to avoid extradition from the United States. As I noted at the outset, the relationship between New York City and the UN has often been a rocky one. And perhaps as much as for any other reason, the growth of the UN membership over the years has created friction with city residents. There has been an increasing need for housing for delegates and their families and schools with a globally oriented curriculum for their children. And probably most discontent among New Yorkers, and perhaps the biggest test for city fathers, has been the UN's need for more office space. Not just for UN workers, but for the agencies associated with the UN, such as the very prominent UNICEF. 
and aggravating the situation has been the fact that at times, some overzealous city and state planners came up with all too extravagant expansion plans. One was a plan in 1969 that called for a superblock, two city blocks combined as one, on which four 40-story towers would house offices, apartments, and hotel space. They would be enclosed in reflecting glass, a kind of a glass bubble. New Yorkers were outraged. The New York Times called the plan radical, and Pete Hamill, a popular newspaper columnist, put it this way. Quote, Somehow these freeloading diplomats assigned to the UN have some blessed right to live across the street from their job, while the rest of us have to come screaming into Manhattan on subway cages. Eventually, the plan for the cloaked glass bubble got nowhere and was pared down to what today are three buildings near the UN on 44th Street near 1st Avenue. They're called number 1, 2, and 3 UN Plaza. They provide mostly office space, but also apartments and a large hotel. Observers often ask about the city's mayors and how each of them interacted with the UN, a reflection, of course, of the city's hospitality toward its international resident. So just a quick word about our mayors and the UN over the years. In 1954, when Robert Wagner, a liberal Democrat, was sworn in for the first of what would be three terms in office, the UN city relationship was at a low point. Dag Hammarskjöld had just become Secretary General and the city's Robert Moses was the New York official in charge of relations. The two men had clashed. Now, Wagner was determined to mend the schism. Almost immediately, he called on Hammerschild at his UN office, and after his meeting with him, said, quote, he would leave no stone unturned to find a way to smooth out the 101 wrinkles in the UN city relationship. Wagner relieved Moses of his duties with the UN and set up a committee and later an official city commissioner's office to work on problems. It was a time when the UN might have picked up and left. The organization was still very new to the city and most delegates had not actually moved to New York but were commuting back and forth, leaving their families in their home countries. Many observers feel Wagner deserves considerable credit for his part in keeping the UN in New York City for the long term. Wagner was followed by John Lindsay in 1966. Lindsay's work with the UN was almost totally related to finding more office space for the growing organization, the original grandiose plans that caused such residential tension and were pared down. It was the next mayor, Abraham Beam, who had the honor of finally opening the new UN buildings, although his other personal interaction with the UN was minimal. At the time, he was mostly concerned with the city's great financial crisis of the 1970s, which had found the city on the brink of bankruptcy. The next mayor was Ed Koch. Many New Yorkers remember that Koch was pretty hard on the UN, at least vocally. Koch readily acknowledged that his feelings stemmed from policy positions of member states, primarily related to Israel. He called himself, quote, a proud Jew governing a city with more Jews than live in Tel Aviv, and he notoriously called the UN a cesspool, hypocritical, and cowardly. Next, Mayor Dinkins. His contribution to the New York City-UN relationship is often overlooked, but it's important. It was during Dinkins' term that the city managed to dissuade four very prominent UN organizations, including UNICEF, from abandoning the city and moving elsewhere. Rudy Giuliani came into office in 1994, and certainly no mayor has been more provocative and volatile in his pronouncements against the UN. 
He is notorious for an episode in 1995 when the UN was celebrating its 50th anniversary and he ordered one of the guests, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, Yasser Arafat, out of a city-sponsored Lincoln Center concert to which all UN members and observer states had been invited. The New York Daily News headline maybe said it best. It read, quote, Rudy is one rude dude. Then later, Giuliani went on a year-long tirade over diplomats' unpaid parking tickets and diplomatic immunity, once telling New Yorkers, quote, if the UN would like to leave New York over parking tickets, then we can find another use for that part of town. The next mayor, Michael Bloomberg, was the mayor who finally resolved the parking ticket dilemma, and his administration also worked hard on a plan that would have created a new high-rise tower just south of the UN campus for still more UN offices. But because of city opposition at first, and then UN indecision later, that plan has never come to fruition. The current mayor, Bill de Blasio, has an aggressive plan to assure that the UN city relations are warm. Since the Trump administration's cold attitude toward the United Nations has tempered U.S.-U.N. relations, it seems the city is stepping in to fill the void. New York City has any number of programs in place to bring the U.N. and the city closer together. The slogan of one of the city's campaigns sums it up, quote, We are the city of United Nations. Together, we are greater. So now, as the New York-United Nations partnership enters its eighth decade, the world's great metropolis and the world's central meeting place have indeed shown that they can coexist on the crowded island of Manhattan. Just as New York Mayor LaGuardia predicted back in the 1940s, and as many have observed over the years, it is New York's diversity, its culture, its freedoms, its energy, that have served to strengthen the bond with the United Nations. A worldly affair it has proved to be. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 